right. Happy Thanksgiving week, everyone. I'm always just blown away how shortchanged my generation was in regards to time off of school. Right now, as I'm recording, it's Friday before Thanksgiving, and my kids are going to be on break when they get home, all the way until I was a senior in high school. We all went to school all the way through the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. One day we're in school, the next day is Thanksgiving. Feels archaic now. I mean, like some caveman age stuff. I do want to express how thankful I am to make this podcast for so many years. It's always amazed me to hear from some of you who've been journeying with me for five years plus. So cool. And what I love is that you guys are fans of trying to have a space that attempts to war against polarity and attempts to understand others while always trying to treat them with respect. I'm really thankful for this conversation on this episode with Josh Dyes of the band Showbread. We had a whole episode's worth of discussion, both of us having similar journeys and religious upbringings. We both maintain deep gratitude for trips to the Holy Land. We both took at different times in our lives, just being in close proximity to where we believe God and flesh dwelled, walked among men, died and rose. It's life-changing. And yet I can assure you we have very different approaches to the Christian faith. And although we can't say this for certain because we never got to the finer points of theology, I think we'd both consider one another brothers in Christ. And that's the beauty. We had enough to talk about just in our desires to, oh, I say, see the church get better at really loving and respecting people, meeting them where they are because they're humans. We're both pastors, and I can tell both of us hold views about the church I'd assume most Christians would hold to be a bit unorthodox, even though Josh may disagree with that last term when it comes to him. Hey, we didn't even get to the belief parts. I'll tell you a little secret. I think we sense the brotherhood because deep down inside, we could just both feel one another to be after the same things that we know we're after because of the spirit living inside of us and our life experience. So we'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I have an introvert's grievance. So I'm an introvert. If hanging out really isn't the purpose of me being where I am, I typically like to keep to myself. Sometimes people say I have a resting bitch face. I think us introverts sometimes get a bad rap for being unnecessarily standoffish. But let me give you a reason why. An example of how extroverts take advantage of any behavior of an introvert that looks anything different from I'm sticking to myself, leave me the hell alone. So I was at a soccer game. You know, I like talking to parents casually every now and then. I like the people there, but I don't like to watch the game as a mob of parents. I typically sit on my chair, Priscilla usually walking around watching and talking to people and getting a little way too invested. (laughs) And oftentimes I don't make a peep. I've even talked to my kids to make sure they know, hey, I really do care and I'm rooting for you. (laughs) But the other day at a game, I broke my silence to say something lighthearted to the referee to make people laugh. I still like acting a fool and it's even better when others benefit from it. But then someone, I mean, I think it was a grandparent, not even a parent. He's been sitting within six feet of me this whole time. He hasn't spoken a word to me, thankfully. He's constantly talking to other people and I think himself. And apparently because I made one little joke to the ref, not even to him, he thought I'd just signaled to him that, hey, I want to talk to you for the rest of the game. I couldn't believe it. And I could see him making one comment about my joke and then both of us moving on with our lives, but to assume it's now talk time. And then when I get gradually quieter and quieter because I want to concentrate on the game and not talk, I'm supposed to feel bad about that? (laughs) Introvert rant over and my passion is put on here. I'm not really that irritated, but the confusing sentiments are the same. So happy Thanksgiving, folks, and please learn social cues of when someone is being nice and when they just want to party with an excitement round of small talk time. (laughs) All right, Death to Deconstruction, a book by today's guest who's coming on right now, Josh Dice. Where are you in Georgia? I'm actually in uh, Vancouver, Washington. Okay, okay. This uh, shows how much I know. <laughs> Was did the band originate from Georgia? It did, okay. yes. Okay, yes. gotcha. That, that's where I'm from. That's where I was born and everything. Gotcha, so gotcha. Didn't come out of nowhere. So, fellow Southern boy. 
I hear you. I hear you. What's what's your southern? Where are you at, southern? Yeah, so I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. I've been here. Been here my whole life, basically outside of college and a year of travel and that sort of thing. I was in a podcast with some label mates of yours, Emory, for years. uh, Back, yeah, yeah, I'm aware. Yep, yep. And so, been doing Pastor with No Answers now since about 2015 or so. I'm super psyched about this conversation because, like, when I read the synopsis of of your book, it sounds a lot like me. But I'm curious, would you see deconstruction as something that some Christians have done and have remained Christian? Or do you see deconstruction as all the way out sort of thing? Well, the short answer is, in one sense, obviously, I think that people can deconstruct to the point of deconversion right. and then re- return to the to to faith and to you know the uh, the Christian movement but I think and one thing I argue in the book is that at this point because of the way the cultural conversation has gone it might be helpful to just uh, prefer other words at least I do I think that in the kind of pop culture or at least spiritual pop culture vernacular deconstruction has become the shorthand sure, for yeah I tore down my faith and I made something else up. Yeah. You know, uh, so I prefer terms like transformation or the evolution of faith, spiritual formation, those kinds of things, which imply all the things that people mean when they say, quote unquote, good deconstruction. Right. Everyone transforms and evolves faith as they follow Jesus. And often that is painful and messy and, you know, the, the kinds of things people mean when they say good deconstruction and rather than qualified you know, levels and degrees of deconstruction. I just use different words. Gotcha. Yeah. It it appears as if you have done some deconstructing or what, what's, what's your preferred terminology? No, I have done the deconstruct. I have actually done deconstructing the thing that I'm beating up on. I have done it. Yeah. I was in that world and participating. Did you deconstruct all the way out uh, for a time? I did. I deconstructed my way out of church, Mm -hmm. out of um, evangelicalism, but not out of, you know, belief, theism, I believed in God, and not out of uh, faith in Jesus, though I had departed from, like, the, you know, the historic Jesus tradition, but then returned to church, returned to, you know, orthodoxy, all those things. Gotcha. Are you orthodox? I am orthodox, and what I mean by that is that, uh, not like Eastern Orthodox okay. or Okay, because my, my brother converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, that's why I was Oh, cool, curious. yeah. I just mean that in the classic, like, I, I'm talking about the historic right. apostolic Christian movement, not like some new version that I made up. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, totally. Uh, totally. Mine is the same as the creeds and, you know, the all that stuff. Sure. Yeah, so it'll be, it, this will be kind of a, a fun little investigation as far as where you and I are are both at having changed so much. I I can my listeners are familiar with my story so I'll try to make it super concise with you but you know it's it's interesting because people saw us as as such radicals and honestly when we started bad christian i i think we were pretty much fundamentalists you know we swore <laughs> i mean we cussed <laughs> that's about it and and we had converse you know conversations that people aren't used to christians having and, and just talk very openly about stuff and i'm i in no way am i slamming everything that bad christian stood for but over the course of years it turned out that two two of the you know two out of the three became anti-church and that just that just wasn't where I was at. But I started deconstructing what I call <laughs> it sounds so mean and I, I'm I'm so pro church, but I say I deconstructed from church bullshit probably around college age into early adulthood. It just start stuff just stopped making sense. And man, I, I wrote a whole book on just how screwed up I was because I already was susceptible to anxiety and OCD and depression. And, you know, I remember at a very young age and honestly, as an adult, I'm starting to now realize that that stuff was kicked off by the sort of toxic religion that I was introduced to because my family went from Catholicism to Pentecostalism. Once we went, started going to an Assemblies of God church, and I'm not saying all Assemblies of God churches are like that, but it thrusted me into probably a couple of decades of constant fear, constant worry about my salvation, constant saying the sinner's prayer. Uh, you know, I just felt like all this responsibility was on my shoulders. Fast forward to right now, I feel more free than I've ever been. I just got back from a trip to Israel, which is just, it was just wonderful. There was, I'll, I'll share this uh, with you because I just think it's, it's just 
phenomenal. But the the tour guide that we had, he wasn't a sensationalist. He didn't like make promises of that's where Jesus definitely was. But there was one place where he said, hey, I know you're used to me saying maybe and there's a chance. He said, but you can guarantee because it was the entrance to the ancient temple. He said, you can guarantee that Jesus's feet uh, walked on this. And dude, I I kissed the ground. I look like a Muslim man. But uh, evangelical Joey of 15 years ago would definitely think Joey of 2020 is a complete heretic, has complete lost his way, is leading other people astray. The irony is I work at a mega church who most people would just say that's an evangelical church. Now, I know behind the scenes that it is a different, completely different ball game, And I mean, this is proof. Proof is in the pudding. They know my views. They know how I feel about the LGBTQ community. They know what I think about the afterlife and the fact that I still have a job should (laughs) signify to people, okay, that's not just your stereotypical evangelical church. So that's where I'm at. You know, this podcast that you're on right now is definitely a very healthy outlet for me to be able to talk about these sorts of things. But I also produce a podcast for uh, Seacoast, the, the church that I work at. And, you know, I'm more representing the church not really podcast for me to expel all of my beliefs and all of that. But I would love for you just to walk us through your journey, if whatever would be a good starting place, but I'd like to hear your story. You can slow down and take your time. I rushed through mine, but I really want to hear yours. No, that's cool. I, well, the first thing I thought of was that I also, I went to Israel a, a few years ago and did the, I had the exact same moment with uh, all, every detail that you, you know, there was a lot of, well, maybe this could have been something. Right. We're not sure. And sometimes it's like, there's a pretty good chance. But then there were one or two places that were like, well, this we know for sure because this is the only way in and out, that kind of thing. And uh, everyone was scoffing at the people touching the ground and mm. stuff. And I was like, man, forget this. I'm touching these steps where Jesus was. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, uh, I, I mean, just, just you talking about it, I'm tearing up because... It, it took me a while to get the lump out of my throat, man, because it was for me and I don't it, it could have been my brain manufacturing this moment. And that's fine with me. It was a powerful moment regardless. But bottom line, it was such a moving spiritual experience because, dude, I could not shake. I just want to be with him and not in a suicidal way. You know, I've gone through depression, mental health crisis, but just in a very healthy I long to be with with Jesus. What? Oh, it was beautiful. Okay, yeah. I'll be quiet. That's amazing. I can relate. No, I can yeah. relate. I, w- I had the same, um, you know, unique to me and unique to you, but the same kind of moment. Yeah. So I understand. Uh, and I had a lot of those same experiences that you're describing. Uh, I was raised uh, in a, a different tradition, but with the same kind of consequences. So, uh, meaning, I was near Savannah, Georgia, deep south. Uh, raised in a Southern Baptist church and in an environment that was uh, fundamentalist and conservative, heavily politicized, militaristic, nationalistic. Republicans are Jesus's party, that sort of thing. Of course, yeah, of course. (laughs) There's a a moral responsibility for the Southern Christian to participate in the political machine this way, you know, regardless of how it compromises our theology or practice. And the umbrella over all that was like a really nasty, heavy racism. The environment or the area in which I grew up was uh, somewhere to the tune of like 60% black, 40% white. You know, it was a very segregated community, segregated church world, and not quietly segregated. It was, you know, like a we stick to our own kind and, you know, weaponizing the Bible to justify racism and a shameless out. It wasn't in now I live in the Pacific Northwest and there's still racism. Racism is wherever you go. But the racism of the Deep South, at least, you know, when when I was there in my you know first 20 plus years of life, wore itself shamelessly on the sleeve of the, you know, the, the Christian Southerner. I had, like you, a lot of that same baggage. You know, it was. It sounds maybe similar to yours in that there was a lot of fire and brimstone, a lot of the terror of God, the wrath yeah, of God. Yeah, for sure. But it was a paradoxical because it mixed into that, there was also, you know, Jesus as personal Savior, Jesus as loving God. You, you're, you're, you're the, you're the first, nice? yeah, you're the first person to initiate that paradox in the conversation. Like there's been plenty of times where I have said that, like, it's like, we're, we're worshiping the Lord about his grace and his mercy. And we just love, and he first loved us. And it's like, well, wait a second. Why am I scared that if I were to get in a car wreck after swearing, 
that I would go to hell. That's grace. That's a very yeah. weak salvation. But yeah, it, it's yeah. such a paradox, man. It was. It was. On the one hand, there was this, like you, a, you know, a kind of fear and pain. Yeah, you know, like a, I, I think anyone, good or bad, church experience has some kind of religious trauma. You know, you get hurt, and when you grow up around people, church has people. There was the, you know, the trauma of. For me, it manifested itself in. Does God hate me? I'm worried that God hates me. You know, and I, I can't seem to. Were you listening to Mark Driscoll at the time? No, no, (laughs) I wasn't. You know, by the time that um, did you hear his? Did you hear that uh, that super famous sermon of his where he says God hates you? Yes, I did. Yeah, I saw the you know I saw the decontextualized (laughs) clip, but I don't know that any amount of context could have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, give us more context to God hating us. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what could have fixed that that thing. <laughs> now, by the time that you know Driscoll came on the scene in a you know a major way, a famous way, I was already so convincedly not reformed, and I'll I'll, I'll be the first to say it was at a immature phase of my um, spiritual formation where I had little patience for my you know what I would describe as theological enemies. So, so man. This guy, it made me seriously bent out of shape to see this guy yelling yeah. about God's hate on YouTube. Yeah, do you mind? Uh, do you, do you mind telling your age? Just it's it's actually very interesting to me because I was way into Mark Driscoll. So obviously, your spiritual journey of of deconstruction probably started way before mine. But how old are you? I'm 39. Okay, yeah, I'm 45. So yeah, you were you were a smart youngster then. <laughs> oh no, that wasn't it at all. It it was circumstantial, you know. I spent the early years of my life, childhood, adolescence, in that church environment until uh, myself, my brother, and some of my friends discovered punk rock, and that really changed our worldview in a sense. Not meaning that it put us at odds with Christianity or Jesus. We were still enthusiastic about following Jesus. This is like as a 15, 16-year-old, still participating in youth group in this like crazy, messed up culture of evangelicalism in the South. And we were, you know, we were uh, provocateurs, we were troublemakers, but not in the sense that we had been, you know, apostate or estranged from the church. We were participating in a meaningful way. Now, how how were you troublemakers kind of like with just speaking up on things that weren't cool about the church sort of thing? Yeah. And being drawn to culture and art that was you know, not just poo-pooed by our church, but kind of off-limits, scary, bad. This was during, you know, this was during the 80s and 90s, the satanic panic, and the devil is in media, the devil is in culture and art and music, and even in Christian music. And we were inquisitive by nature, so we asked a lot of questions. I was in particular and would ask, you know, well, why? And not in the sense that I came, I was, you know, egotistical and arrogant. You know, I was 19 and thought that I had figured out how, how wrong Christianity was, and I was the first person to do it. So I was, I was definitely that person. But I think that I went into a lot of these youth group conversations good-naturedly because I wanted to be there. I just wanted to work it out, you know? I, so I would say, well, why does it say this? That doesn't make any sense. And, and so I got a lot of, well, you know, you're kind of poisoning the environment of the church with all your doubt and cynicism. And I think there was probably, if I'm honest, a, a dimension of <laughs> truth to that because I was outspoken and I dominated conversations and that kind of thing. But there was also an air of like, if you just would be good and be quiet, this would be fine. Sure. But instead, you insist on asking these questions and it's leading you down a dark road instead of like encouraging me like, you know, this is part of following Jesus. You're supposed to ask questions and it's okay to have doubts and wrestle through these things with people in community. So when I discovered punk rock, that to me was a vehicle that could carry most of the things that I was interested in aesthetically and philosophically, the kind of like rebellious spirit and provocative finger pointing question asking. Yeah. That kind and just of out of curiosity. And do you mind if I interrupt? Does it throw you oh, off? Please, by all means, or okay. I'll never cool, stop. Cool. <laughs> what was your entry point into uh, punk rock? Because there's just so many eras and like what what's some low hanging fruit bands that you were into? Initially, it's funny because uh, I went backward 
um, from kind of mainstream, what we would call secular punk rock into Christian punk rock. And then that was how I found quote unquote real punk rock. So when skate punk, the skate punk revival happened in the early nineties with bands like green day and offspring, like all my peers were buying the green day record. We're buying the mm -hmm. offspring record and we're noticing that it was different from the other, you know, junk drawer alternative bands like, whoa, this is fast and yeah. it's snotty and has attitude. And then I went to a youth camp and they did the whole, you know, like, oh, if you like those bands, <laughs> then you should try this band. I worked at Family Christian Store and we had a whole poster of if you like this band, here's your shot. It, the worst one ever. Do you remember the band Luxury? The, were you into Tooth yes. & Nails where you remember them? Yep. The, they, they said that Luxury sounded like Nirvana. And I was so pissed off. I was like, this is not Nirvana for crying out loud. And and now I like luxury, but it it for a second I was like super disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I almost did a spit take when you said luxury sounds like Nirvana. That's awesome. Nirvana. <laughs> the funny thing about those charts is that I liked them because to me it was like recommending all this Christ, quote unquote Christian music that I wouldn't have found otherwise. It was full of tooth and nail bands and i was often disappointed by the results uh in terms of their you know congruence between the band sure. to which they were being compared but would find a new interesting band you know like i would maybe if i was going to luxury to find something that sounded like nirvana i'd be disappointed in that sense but then would realize that oh luxury is pretty cool sure so did you get into value pack goatee? i loved value pack i did too yeah goatee hook slick shoes Yes, all, yeah. all the first generation yeah. and second generation tooth and nail punk bands, you know. But the gateway was the first MXPX record. So, oh, Poconacha, yep. Yeah, somebody. At, it was a nice, well-meaning, you know, like a camp counselor dude that <laughs> said, you know, you like. I think I was wearing like an Offspring shirt. Right. And he said, if you if you like that, you should try this band. And he gave he gave us you know a, a copy of Poconacha. We were like, dude, this is so much more punk than the Offspring uh -huh. record. It was like really, really fast and crazy and rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. And you know, and in those liner notes, he, they had on like rancid shirts and no effects shirts. Mm -hmm. So then we were like, well, let's try these bands. And so, yeah. ironically, we wow. discovered Epitaph and all the you know the more credible underground punk bands because we bought the or we were given the MXPX yeah. record. Yeah. You know what's funny is Green Day and Dookie was so huge that when Poconacha came out, there were so many people, including myself, that was my only exposure to that poppy punk stuff to where I thought for a while MXPX was just ripping Green Day off because those were the only two bands that I had as context. And then I realized later on, oh my gosh, you know, MXPX, their own their own band. Yeah, it was because the sound is so specific specific and so especially the the pacing and the bpms and the drums are so immediately recognizable that the first time you hear it done again you're like oh man this is just and then you realize like oh there's a whole world of bands exactly. that are doing yep. this in, in yep. unique ways that was the the punk rock thing was the turning point both for us vocationally because we started our own band around that time as teenagers and and that was showbread that was showbread, yeah, okay. and we 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 sincerely wanted to, and not in some kind of you know, even though we were young and naive and not you know all that intellectually sophisticated, we sincerely wanted to talk about Jesus through punk rock music and not as a put on. We weren't like, oh, you know, let's do this evangelistically to convince. We just thought we like Jesus, we like the stuff he has to say. We could write songs about it. It seems to suit this genre because it's also provocative, just like Jesus. And that was kind of met with um, at first concern from the you know the world of our upbringing, which eventually became outright pushback, which became you know alienation and estrangement from the church. Right. And so there was a lot of I don't I wouldn't have admitted it at the time. But there was a lot of pain there. I think that I would have just said, oh, they're dumb and I don't care because I didn't want to admit how much value I had placed on the, the people that had, you know, collectively raised me as a community and that I did care what they thought and that I was disappointed that they weren't approving of me, you know, that kind of thing. So I just would have said, oh, I don't care. I don't care what they say. But I, I, there was a lot of hurt there. 
And there were, you know, there were good people too that would behind the scenes kind of be like, man, you guys want to make a band and talk about Jesus? How can we possibly complain about, you know, my parents, (laughs) they were, they were super supportive the entire time. They never kind of joined in on the pitchfork thing. Yeah. And were your, Uh, were your parents pretty evangelical? Cause that's, that was, that was really crazy that I think about this now. My parents were very evangelical. I would say still pretty fundamentalist, but they were very progressive when it came to music. And I think it was out of desperation because around fourth grade, they said no more radio for you and your brother. And we were huge in the music. And then Striper came along and where, (laughs) where, Everyone in our church were down on Striper, their Satan's tool, and that, you know, I mean, they're sleeping with women and they're backstage and stuff. My parents were all about it. There was a time when my family felt like there was just all sorts of stuff going on bad. And so my mom said, Joey, put in to hell with the devil and just blast it. <laughs> my mom said that. I was like, hell yeah, let's battle Satan right now with Michael Sweet, baby. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, actually really, really similar experience. It's funny how similar it is. My- yeah, my dad would read all the lyrics. That's one thing. You know, he it, it, we had to give him the lyrics. And uh, I, I've said this before, but there's an old school punk band, Empty Tomb, and Empty Tomb did not pass the Virgil Svensson test. He was like, I'm sorry, you can't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my mom, you know, she was uh, was and is like highly educated and and really liked a lot of art and literature in particular. So she actually had a paradigm for um, aesthetics beyond the narrow world of the evangelical palette. You know, she my mom was the person who gave me my first, you know, Kafka novel and my first Sylvia Plath book of poems and Dang, and yeah. actually encouraged me to oh, if you like that, you should try these things. And my dad complimented that uh, recipe by he was, you know, a 70s rocker dude. So he loved Aerosmith and Queen and ACDC. And he enjoyed sharing those things with me and my brother, even though my mom in that sense would go like, oh, come on, this especially bands like Aerosmith that were so, you know, hypersexual and vulgar. And, you know, he bought me a copy of uh, Get a Grip, by Aerosmith on cassette and just he actually said as he passed it to me and his you know and while I was sitting in the passenger side of his pickup truck like just don't tell your mom (laughs) so behind the scenes that was the you know the world of our upbringing you know like my family was really participatory in the church my dad was you know like on all the committees and my mom helped organize all the stuff and taught Sunday school and taught the women's classes and but then there was also a a dimension of like there's we're not going to do all the crazy stuff you know there was disney or there was a disney boycott at some point in the southern baptist convention and they it came trickled down to our church and they're like everyone has to go throw out all their you know weird plastic clamshell vhs cases because all the disney movies came in those big gigantic wallets something to do with gay day at Disney world, like urban legends around, you know, like homoerotic stuff or something. And then my parents, you know, we'd be on the way home and say like, are we really going to go home and throw out the little mermaid? And they'd be like, (laughs) nah, you know, (laughs) but then there were, there were certain things that, you know, they would participate. So it was a real mixed bag. Uh, But like you, they, when they discovered that we had such a profound affection for music and that, we didn't just, you know, like the, you know, when my dad would put on Night at the Opera, we studied the lyrics and looked at the record and memorized the songs. They're like, wow, they're really into this. And when we, you know, uncovered this, like, it seemed almost like seedy underground world of Christian music, the bands like MXPX and all those uh, first generation tooth and nail bands that you had, to, you couldn't even buy them at the Christian bookstore. You had to go in and put them on order and they'd sure. say, you can get 90 pound wuss, but it's going to take six weeks. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, Why you know, didn't you and just order would... from tooth and nail, man? That's what my brother and I would do. <laughs> just order them straight from tooth and nail, baby. <laughs> we eventually got to that point because, uh, you know, the, you couldn't go to the Christian bookstore and get the training for utopia record. They'd be right. like, we can't carry it. So you have to order that from tooth and nail. There were so many funny conflicts at Christian bookstore, like roadside monument literally had a song called sperm, sperm ridden burden. And they, they had to change it to S R B just, just to be in the Christian bookstore. It's like sperm. Like that's really going to get you caught up. <laughs> then I, you know, I, I got to live it out. I thought that was as, you know, a tooth and nail artist having to talk to Christian distributors about like, well, can you change this word or can you, you know, can we do this? So 
I was kind of proud to participate in that grand tradition. <laughs> but then, you know, my parents did the same thing. They would take the, uh, you know, one of my favorite records then, and honestly now, was the second 90 Pound Wuss record, Where Meager Die of Self-Interest. Oh, and man. They opened that thing up, and they're like, oh, my God, this... <laughs> On the one hand, it's like it was overtly Jesus-centric, uh, uh, more so than a lot of the kind of, uh, quote, you know, closeted Christian bands that just spoke vaguely positively and called it Christian. But they were, you know, they were calling Jesus by name and using scripture. But then it was also like it had this like crust punk aesthetic oh to it. Oh, my like goth and People need I, to check it, that album out. Just listen to it once all the way through. It's an experience, yes, man. Heart-wrenching. It, it, just, oh. Yeah, oh, man. It spoke to me. It, it still does. And and the subsequent, you know, the follow-up shorthand operation. But those were the kind of records that they were like, okay. But it also... <laughs> <laughs> It's also kind of conflicting because this seems really, really dark. But I think that that helped give them a paradigm for what we would go on to do. I think that at some point, even though they were supportive the entire time, they, there was pushback the way that I think any concerned, loving parent that's imperfect would say, okay, but must we go this far? Or, you know, I'm a little worried about this thing. And do you have to have the mohawk? You know, like they're still Southern parents. So. My dad was like, oh, my God, earrings, really? You know, it was that kind of world. Exactly. But they eventually came to a point where, and they, they told me that they were like, you know what? We just realized at some point, like, our kids are sincerely trying to figure out how to follow Jesus, and they're weird. So <laughs> we can make our peace with that, and we can be supportive and encouraging, and, and we're here for you. And, you know, they were the ones who came to see us play and, you know, brought the, the little VHS camera and filmed us, even though it was like 2007 or something, you know. <laughs> so there was a back and forth. There was pushback, but then there was also support. Uh, but we carried that pain, or I carried that pain into my experience of following Jesus. And I developed out of that an extreme cynicism toward the, not just our church, but the idea of church. I, I was embittered, quite frankly. And I was not willing to um, explore a conversation around forgiveness or healing. I was more like, no, why would I do that? And so I became convinced that it wasn't just that I was dealt a bad hand. It was the, the entire thing was inherently corrupt and I needed to figure out something better. And I, I realize this is going to step on some toes, but you know, this is the one of the big arguments of my book is that one of the problems with deconstruction is that it can't possibly sustain a real community around itself because there's no shared sense of right belief. You know, there, there's like a what's good for you is good for you and live and let live, which sounds great on paper. But then there's no orthodoxy in the sense that there's no like, this is the code. We believe these things and we don't believe these things. And every worldview has to have objective truth, has to have a shared sense of like, we believe these things, not these things. Or else, you know, anyone who apprentices under a master, you go to the karate studio, you go there to learn karate. And if you say, I don't believe in karate, they'll say, well, that's fine. But then you can't train here anymore because that's what we're doing. I think maybe, you know, when people are claim unification around the idea for love for all, which I, I'm not saying they're like, oh, you're li liars, of course. you know, yep. but maybe often what they, some of those people mean is like a general sense of kindness, respect for other people, tolerance in the classic sense, not the modern sense. And what I mean by that is like, you know, uh, there was a time when classic philosophical tolerance meant like, you and I disagree on things. That's fine. We can actually treat one another with dignity and respect. Now, tolerance has kind of been reinterpreted to be like, agree or we destroy you on exactly. both sides of the socio-political oh, yeah. aisle. Oh, yeah. You know, kindness, respect, humility, tolerance, and the willingness to um, stay grounded in one's belief as like, I do believe that this is objectively true. But I don't hate you. I don't feel like I need to treat you poorly or, or, or without dignity as a human being. And we can sit here face to face and say, I don't agree with you. But, you know, like I see the image of God in you is what, the, how, you know, a Christian would put it. And therefore, you're, you're worthy of respect and dignity in that, um, even if I think you're wrong and you think I'm wrong. But then when it, eventually when it gets to practice, the love is going to splinter into different definitions. You know what I mean? I think so. Yeah. So all that to say, you know, that that was my journey of church cynicism, church disenfranchisement, 
And uh, I spent years in that place. And the more that I spent like, I'm going to do Christianity my own way. There was a period where I was like, I'm going to figure it out for myself because I think I'm the only one who's smart enough to get it right. Uh, I wouldn't have said that out loud, but that's what I actually thought. Well, and you and you probably didn't trust too many people too, though. You know, I mean, exactly. Ob- yeah. Ob- obviously, there was some pride there, but it was also you had experience. Like, d- can I really depend on anybody else to to help me with my questions? I guess not. You know, in your yes. context, there were people around, but you just didn't have access to them. Yes, absolutely. And you know, the more that I traveled around the world, and since we're a Christian band, we're participating in you know, churches and church events and playing at churches. And, and I didn't walk into these places, you know, spitting on the ground and saying like, this is so dumb and so <laughs> fake. But internally, there was so much cynicism, you know, and I just, I'm, I'm wired to a fault to have this extreme allergic reaction to anything that I perceive to be phony. Even if it's not actually phony, I have this gravitational pull to check out and say like, oh, this, I'm above this because it's not authentic. It's not sincere. And which is probably why I identified with punk rock music and kind of an allergic reaction to, you know, pop music. And that, you know, like if it's popular, it sucks, that kind of mentality, <laughs> which again, it's like, it's, it can be helpful in a few narrow applications, but yep. across the board, it's been really hard. <laughs> yeah. Musically, uh, we were missing out on some good stuff. Like now we're old true. enough to be like, man, we missed out on some of that stuff. I got to check that out now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and that same mentality of like, oh, I missed out and I have to check this out is eventually what came back into my spiritual formation. Wow, that's cool, man. When I eventually realized I was holding on re- really tightly to, I was, I was really hurt. I'm not making light of and I was treated poorly and it was a bad church experience. But the more I traveled around the world, of course, I saw, you know, phony and abused Christianity. I saw the weaponized Bible and the toxicity of evangelicalism. But I also saw a lot of beautiful expressions of community, imperfect, of course, always, but a lot of incredible self-sacrificial love from the kind of people that I would uh, immediately wall off and say like, nope, they're this, they're this kind of person. Right. Um, and I even am now able to see the fact that even my upbringing and the church experience of my childhood had beautiful things about it. And there was a lot of little things that I think the spirit of God has brought back to my mind after the fact that like, oh, there was this person that did this for me. And there was this true thing that was spoken to me or over me. It's just it, the whole thing is there's people and people are screwed up. And that's not to you know excuse away evil and abuse or any of those things. But I came to terms with the fact that anywhere I was going to go, there was going to be human crappiness there because I would at least be there. And I was aware right. of my own shortcomings, um, not to mention the fact that the m- more people, more brokenness. So that that's an inevitability. But I couldn't keep doing it with no the two things that are missing when there is no community and there's no shared sense of, of right belief are like accountability and vulnerability. There was no one to say okay, well, if you are going to figure it out, what about this? Or call me on my crap and say, like, you you say you believe this, but then you do this. Those aren't the same thing. You have to have some degree of um, community accountability and vulnerability to follow any worldview consistently, let alone to like, you know, the way I like to describe discipleship to Jesus, like apprenticeship. You're training under a master to learn a way of life and be formed in a way of life. You can't learn to box or learn karate or learn to play the piano without accountability and vulnerability and someone saying, no, you did that wrong. You have to do it this way. And so I eventually, you know, hobbled my way back into church with all my cynicism intact and all my guard up and everything. It was more like the window opened just enough for me to say, well, I'll give it a shot, but that kind of thing. Did you have a little bit more context, though, in what sort of community you surrounded yourself with? Like, were you more choosy? Yes, I was. And I think, you know, by the grace of God, there was, it started with, you know, the advent of podcasting sermons. And, you know, my wife, or she was my fiance at the time, was like, oh, I found that, you know, I would be traveling. And she's like, I found this. I think you'll like this guy. He sounds like, he sounds like you, you know, the kind of things that you like. And, you know, I was so um, self-absorbed that that, honestly, would be I wasn't open to stuff that didn't sound like me. I wanted it to already be in line with what I already wanted to be true. But I think God graciously used that as an in, you know, to be like, you know, I listened to a sermon and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I've never really heard that kind of thing. And interesting. Uh, I I would listen to another one of those. And 
So then we ended up stepping into one of those churches like, well, we like this. And but it it came with eventually there had to be a point in time where I consciously decided if I'm going to do this, I have to just try it. And these people don't look like me. They don't like the kinds of things that I like. They don't agree with every single, you know, one of my web, you know, militaristic theological um, strongholds that I hold to be true. And they're probably going to be like, huh, how come, you know, and push back on me, which I I wasn't fond of. But if I'm going to try it, I have to try it. And so there, there finally came in the the accountability and vulnerability. And obviously, anyone who's experienced either one of those things knows that they're anything but clean and painless. Obviously, there was a lot of ups and downs. I've I've been in like even the same small group at my church for like eight years now um, with the same group of people. So it's been painful and hard and beautiful. You know, I, I've experienced more growth and spiritual formation in that context than any of the years before it trying to do my own personal pan, you know, spirituality. Yeah. Now, now in that small group, are there what you would define as like-minded believers that, that resonate with you? Or, or are we talking everybody is a little, you know, you're like, I can't really relate, but... Well, we're very, we're very different in terms of background, um, stories, church experience, personality, wiring, preferences. And so out of that group, you know, there's like, oh, these two people are close friends because they have a lot of chemistry. And these, this person over here isn't really close, close friends the way you would define traditional close friendship, meaning they don't like go to the movies every weekend together. But we choose to keep coming back to this group. And everybody has, you know, like I said, I think anybody who has any church experience at all has some kind of pain uh, because they've experienced, they've rubbed up against the brokenness of other people. So everybody there has their own stories of, you know, we've got a family in our community that's Russian, grew up in the Russian church, and they have stories of the way they were hurt by fundamentalism that sound exactly like my Southern upbringing, even though it's an entirely different country and language yeah. and culture. Um, so there, you know, we relate to one another in the broad and abstract senses, but in a lot of ways, um, there's theological disagreement, but there's unity around like, we're here to follow Jesus together and and figure this out. There's enough of that. Like I came here to learn karate that we can all come to the same dojo. You know what I mean? Yeah. What kind of church is it? Um, it's a non-denominational church. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things that's like, If you, you know, it's a lot like what you were describing earlier in the sense that if somebody who has any experience with church, the way it's expressed, at least in the West in America, came to our church, they'd probably say like, oh, yeah, it looks familiar in all these ways. There's this kind of format. You do these kinds of things. But then if you hang around long enough, it's then it becomes the kind of like, um, geez, they're hardcore about these things. This sounds, I know, like almost like a pretentious thing to say, but if, if I'm doing my job with relative consistency, I think that, you know, we should probably offend both groups of people on a semi-regular basis, meaning people, you know, we're in the Pacific Northwest, so it's not the world of the Deep South anymore by a long shot. We're 10 minutes from Portland, and I, you know, lived in Portland for 10 years, and our church was a church plant from a church in Portland. So if I was saying what I'm saying at my church on a regular basis in Georgia, I would be offending all the people from, you know, my upbringing for for very different reasons that I upset the sensibilities of, you know, the people in my community in the Pacific Northwest. Same exact content that I hope on a given day by the grace of God is consistent with the teachings of Jesus and but it violates the comfort zone of both groups of people for very different reasons. So, yeah. It's in one sense a, a normal church, you know, like it's not non-dom, it's non-denominational, but not like if you came to it, you'd be like, yep, church. But then if you right. hang around, hopefully there'll be something for everyone to be offended by. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Gosh, I, I wish people could see that for the beauty that it is, but there's such extremes that the conservative side will be, but no, we cannot succumb to that. We can't, you know, we cannot compromise. And same with the other side. No, there's places where we just have to draw a line. Ah, we we just miss such an opportunity. And that's why, man, you would have to drag me away from the church that I'm a part of right now, because the fact that I can 
have the postures that I have and communicate them and even argue for them behind the scenes. And I'm still embraced as a fellow believer. That is a big deal. And I, and I don't know how, but that, in my opinion, will be some major revival when that sort of mentality can just spread like, okay, we are going to believe that if you say you believe in Jesus, then that's that's enough. Like we are all seeking Jesus. We're all seeking God together. That's the starting point. That's our unity is our love for one another. Okay, now we can do anything together. We can agree to disagree. We can figure things out. We can talk. We can argue. But at the end of the day, we love each other because we're following the same God. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that often experience in our church and me as a pastor and, and me as a writer, you know, I'm already getting letters from uh, people who are reading the book and asking questions from both side of the the sides of the theological journey, you know, left leaning or right leaning or somewhere in between or fully on one side of the spectrum. You know, just the other night, there was a gentleman who came to me after one of our, you know, Sunday gatherings and was just deeply conflicted by his sincere struggle to intellectually reconcile the resurrection of Jesus. And this is not a dude who was like uh, argumentative or mean-spirited or critical. He was torn up, torn up about this thing that was, you know, going on in his heart and his mind. The interesting thing about the conversation is that he asked me, like, do you, you know, he's asking me for my opinion as his pastor and everything. He's like, do you think that I can be a Christian and not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? And I told him, no, I, I do not think that you can. I think that that's kind of the the identifying feature yeah, of, I agree. of the Christian movement. Now, I've heard people that would disagree, but I totally agree with you. Right. And, but, but I then said, but stay here and figure it out. Be, you know, be here with us. And there's, there's room for you to wrestle with this. I think that the expectation is that it will be one thing or the other, meaning I will say back to him, no, you can't be a Christian and therefore figure it out, or you, you won't even belong to this family. Or B, I'll soften what I think to be true and say, like, you know what? Think whatever you want. I think that he came back to life, but you don't have to think that he came back to life. What I would like to see is a recapturing of uh, a friend of mine calls it uh, courageous fidelity to orthodoxy, meaning like the willingness to say, like, we just believe these things are true unapologetically. And that doesn't necessarily immediately transform us into mean spirited fundamentalists, you know, th that I can say to this dude, the most core thing to what I, what I would argue, the Christian movement that Jesus is raised and that, you know, Paul said, if he didn't come back to life, this whole thing is pointless. Mm -hmm. And I can say, no, no, I think that this, this is it. And, and if you're asking me, honestly, I have to tell you with integrity, that's what I think, but be here. And and we can commit to both things, what what we believe and and space to have conversation and, and right. treat one another with respect. And and I think when we don't do that, we're we're it's not intentional, but the message that we're sending is I have figured out stuff that you haven't figured out, and until then you're 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 dangerous to us. And you know, I see us all we're all in the same boat. This rubs people the wrong way, but uh, a pastor and mentor and friend of mine, I'm uneasy with this because I just want to be mad sometimes. And he's like, every person is doing the best they can with 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 what they have, their their background and just where whatever has happened to them at this point, most people are doing the best that they can. And that's like a team humanity sort of approach. And I think that's what Jesus would be all about. Like, I, I can't think of anything more like Jesus than you telling that guy, hey, I definitely think being a Christian is believing in the resurrection, but come on, like, let's, let's be together in this. I mean, right. Like, like right. I, I think that the, the modern sensibility has very little room for the both. And, you know, the, you can and should comb the biographies of Jesus life, the four first century biographies of Jesus life and find a hardcore Jesus. You know, Jesus was extremely direct about what he believed, and he spoke with a willingness to alienate a certain constituency of his audience with, with how hardcore. You know, like I said, the prerequisite to following Jesus is that you have to deny yourself. In his language, you have to die 
a horrible death to follow Jesus. And, you know, he was extremely critical of um, religious hypocrisy and sin, you know, and, and Jesus, you know, he had all these paradigms for light and darkness, good and evil, sheep and goats. But at the same time, Jesus is partying with uh, the enemy, you know, he's hanging out with, and not just one kind of enemy. We like to romanticize Jesus and be like, oh, he liked hookers. Isn't that cute? But Jesus fraternized with the kind of people that would offend just about anyone you can imagine being interested in what Jesus had to say. He not only fraternized with what, you know, like the charming sinners, like prostitutes and the woman caught in adultery, but he invited tax collectors. These are people who work for the oppressor to cheat their own people out of their mm-hmm. livelihoods. And he's like, you come follow You know, the paradigm I try to give to people in my church is like, it's Jesus walking around a protest in Portland and tapping the Antifa guy with the ski mask and being like, all right, you come follow me. Then he immediately turns around and taps the guy in the MAGA hat with the assault rifle and says, and you too, you come follow me. <laughs> that's awesome. And yep. that's and now true. both of these people have to live together. And, you know, like that's, you know, the, the zealot and the tax collector in the same community where Jesus is eventually going to render both of their worldviews obsolete. If, if they're going to stay and follow him, they're going to have to give up the things that they held to be true. But he taps them immediately and says, you know, not figure this out and then come follow me. It's like, are you ready to do it? Are you ready to die? All right, come this way. And then I'm going to strip all that crap away, you know, and the modern sensibility doesn't have room for the Jesus that is hardcore, direct, you know, you're either for me or against me, the light versus darkness, Jesus, and the Jesus who welcomes sinners and eats with tax collectors, and I've not come to call the the sick or the healthy, but the sick, because we we uh, assume that either Jesus pats us on the head and approves of everything that we do and everything that we want. Jesus would never ask me to de- deny myself; that would be oppressive. Or we only have room for the Jesus who is ha- only hardcore and like, no, this is wrong. Do what's right. Repent of your sin. And he's the, coming back and he's going to kick some ass. Yeah, he is going to, you know, he, <laughs> he hates you, you know, whatever. The, that was, uh, um, Good try. So, I wasn't close, but <laughs> <laughs> I got to work on it. You know, <laughs> I got to work on it. And I'm out of practice. And I think that that's the, in a nutshell, that honestly is one of the great struggles to reconcile the Jesus of the New Testament. In in the the fragility of the modern sensibility, especially amongst a certain generational demographic, is that Jesus welcomes the the quote unquote sinner. Jesus welcomes the people with different worldviews. Jesus welcomes the people where and how they are. You know the Brennan Manning popular paraphrase of "God loves you as you are, not as you should be." All that's true. And then he calls them into a way of life that's incredible and hardcore and the prerequisite of self-denial and you will train under a master, you know, all that kind of stuff. You become, you know, Luke in the swamps of Dagobah or, or Rocky, you know, beating the side of beef in the freezer. It's, it's not a passive way of life for the, the faint of heart, but you're invited. How, how different would you say, like how I characterized where I'm at in some... You know, low hanging fruit doctrines and stuff. Like, would you say that a lot of your evangelical brothers and sisters would say, man, you are way off on your theology, uh, pretty heretical? Or would you say you're, you're kind of in line with what all those guys believe in? And I, I hate I it's, think, it's, it's hard to talk about this because I'm trying not to categorize people, but I think you know what I mean. Oh, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. I get, and these conversations I'm having with people about the book, there's a lot of, oh, you know, I'm not saying everybody, but I get it. You know, it's for the sake of conversation and simplicity, you have to make broad stroke statements about entire groups of people, which is can be unhelpful, but but I get it. I get it. It can also make the conversation make sense. So I think that it's funny because I would be in line probably with evangelicalism is not really a helpful term anymore because it became entirely politicized. And now it's I don't you know, very few people want to have anything to do with it, except the people who did want it to be politicized in the first place. So I'm like, y'all can have it. 
I get what you mean by it in the sense of like Protestant mainstream American Christianity. I doubt that I would really surprise many people with what I think. Uh, you know, I, I went to grad school at a conservative seminary. I, I raised their hackles, you know, like be, because all my professors were hardcore reformed and I wasn't. But that's the kind of, you know, it's disagreement within the camp or within the family kind of thing. I, I happily tell, you know, like I'm, I'm more grounded in what I believe is the historic apostolic Christian tradition um, than I've ever been in my journey of following Jesus. And the kinds of things that I say now that evangelicals would find kooky are not really that out, outrageous. Right. It's more just like I have a different perspective on free will than a Calvinist does right. or that, right. that kind of thing. So maybe it offends certain camps, but within like mainline Christianity, I, I don't really hold any perspectives that are like, oh my God, this guy's right. a heretic. Except right. the Calvinists. They think everyone's a heretic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For sure. So death to deconstruction, what is, at the end of the day, what would be your aim? Like, does it does it have like a a message that you're trying to get across? Is it a message of love and unity or, hey, you don't have to deconstruct? Because I think a lot of times people talk about deconstruction and, and kind of in a demonizing way. And I've just met so many people. Well, first of all, deconstruction for me wasn't a choice. Either I lived a lie or I kind of went with this to figure things out and just entrust myself to God. Then there's some people who have deconstructed all the way out and they're like, man, I want to believe. I miss that hope. Like I miss believing in a higher power. And if that higher power exists, that higher power knows exactly what I need to believe. And it's unfortunate that deconstruction is painted with such a bad brush. And now there's so many evangelical pastors that are catching on to deconstruction. And that's like, that's a buzzword in evangelicalism now because they're wanting to damn it so much. And I'm, I'm not hearing that from you. No, I, you know, the, the not so subtle title of the book to me is for a number of reasons. One, I, th I thought it sounded cool if I'm being honest. And <laughs> two, like I said earlier, that the redefining certain terms to make them more helpful, I think is something that's important in the deconstruction conversation. So in the introduction of the book or early on in the book, I differentiate between pop culture deconstruction and the healthy but often painful um, transformation of faith slowly over time that does involve stripping away parts of things that you were led to believe or taught to believe. And I liken it to renovating a house in that, you know, the renovation of a house can be um, thorough and involve a lot of hard work and, and really significant changes that alter the, you know, the, your sense of comfort and livability, but it's the same house. You know, you stay in the house and you, you do this really hard work and project within the house. Popular deconstruction, as it is um, defined in, in buzzword terminology, like you're saying, and the kind of jumping on the, the bandwagon with evangelical pastors beating up on deconstruction. I think if I'm being generous, what they mean by it is kind of the like big, brave Instagram post, like I'm mad at my dad and my church, so I quit. I don't believe in Jesus anymore, or I don't believe in church and Christianity anymore. I, I think Jesus is like this. I'm going to reinvent him according to my preferences and partialities so that he lets me do the things that I want to do and doesn't offend me in any way and doesn't really uh, bother me in any way and to me the you know a jesus who never bothers you is <laughs> is not the authentic jesus of nazareth i know that sounds like a really bold statement but it, it's the same it, apprenticing under any master any master who's never draws you out of your comfort and your stagnation, your complacency, what you want to do so that you can master a thing, probably not actually teaching you the thing in a meaningful sense. I am wanting to, uh, and this is not, you know, I didn't set out to do this with as a pitch, but I gave it to another um, author to read, uh, Mark Sayers, who has been massively influential to me. He's kind of a, like a, um, a, cultural commentator and um, writer and pastor in Australia, he said after he'd read it, he's like, this book deconstructs deconstructionism, meaning as someone who participated in the actual pop culture deconstruction and the thing that I'm making fun of, I was that person. I, I'm speaking from experience. I also witnessed what I think is like uh, a lot of inherent hypocrisies and 
um, in, inconsistencies that made the entire thing untenable, but that we weren't allowed to talk about in the deconstruction conversation. It began to feel to me as if we had traded one religiosity into another reli- oh, religiosity yeah. and that the fundamentalism was the same on the left as it is on the right. It's a moral police that wants to control what gets said, which words are okay. When I was a kid, the the fundamentalism was on the right. And it was like, we need to control what gets said in public schools. We need to censor art that we think is offensive to our ethical standards. And who cares if they're not shared by everyone? We're right. So screw them. And now that sensibility has kind of migrated on in, to the left in the moral police. There's words you can't say, censor art that offends our certain, our very particular ethical standards. And who cares if no one, if other people don't agree with us, we're right. We're on the right side of history. So screw them. I just saw like kind of trading one uniform for another. It was ultimately deeply unsatisfying to me. And it was, it's a thing that I don't often see happening in the deconstruction conversations at a pastoral level, just as me as a pastor of a church, but also traveling around and talking to people who are stripping their faith for parts. And as someone who was in it and, and experienced it in like a really painful and long way, I, you know, I sat down to write an intellectual book that was just going to make arguments. Um, but then found that it was uh, deconstruction, such an emotional conversation that the book became really emotional and became uh, really personal and vulnerable and, and more of my story than sophisticated theological arguments, even though, you know, I do make theological yeah. so arguments. The, so. so the genre of the book is emo. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> but it's first wave, man. Get yeah. it right. It's like sunny day real estate. It's not like <laughs> Hey, how do you see and I, and hopefully this doesn't sound belittling or anything. I don't know how familiar you are with a lot of progressive theology, the the Rachel Held Evans and Richard Rohr and and all of that. Like how cuz I would kind of put myself in that camp. Do you see from from what you gather, that's what I'm saying is we haven't talked enough, you know, for me to share. But from what you gather, would I be someone that you'd say, yeah, that's my brother in Christ would we'll probably disagree on a ton. But at the end of the day, we're after the same thing. Oh, it depends. You know, like uh, like you said, I I would be remiss to make as really meaningful statements about yeah. people that I, I'm not in community with in a meaningful way. But Theologically speaking, you know, the there was a time in my theological journey when I was most drawn to what have become the figureheads of Christian deconstruction within the camp, kind of like like you're saying, the uh, Rachel Held Evans and, and the Richard Roars. But now, I mean, here's a, he's a great example because now, you know, I am read through Roars' latest, you know, the Universal Christ stuff and. It was so far removed from what I believe personally, yeah. and I don't mean this to sound belittling or anything, but it was so far removed that to me personally, I was like, "This is bananas." And there, but there was a time when what I was saying sounded bananas to you know the the evangelicals in my life, or the quote unquote evangelicals in my life. Uh, you know, I lay it out in the beginning of the the book that I was like, let me just put my cards on the table. You know, I believe in the triune God. I believe in the, you know, the resurrection of Jesus and him as the truest revelation of God, the only way to God. I believe in the scriptures as inspired by God and authoritative and that they're right and all the things that they intend to teach. But I also acknowledge that the scriptures are really dif- difficult to interpret and a lot of wrong has been done in that process believe in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, I have all these things that are the basic doctrinal statement things you'll find if you go look at, you know, a, a, a church. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in that, you know, like there there are young people in my church that come to me and like, oh, really, we don't think this? And I'm like, okay, well, let's have a conversation about it. So I'm having meaningful conversations in community with people who are like, I'm not sure what I think about things like gender or sexuality or even the scriptures. And I'm like, well, I can tell you what I think and let's have a conversation about it. I'm not then saying like, oh, well, then, then you're disqualified. You're out of here. You're not a Christian. To me, the the meaningful piece of the conversation is participating in the community of faith with accountability and vulnerability. I think one of the critiques you could make of those popular authors that do comment on the church but aren't participating in the church is like, well, <laughs> Why would we listen to what this person has to say about the church when they're they're not in it? Being in part of the community of faith is really hard. It costs a lot, and a lot of us are like really trying to figure it out. 
So, you know, yeah, like, like that, that's, that's one of the identifying characteristics for me. Not like, oh, if you don't go to church, you're not a Christian, but... If you don't consider yourself a part of the church, that's a really good point. Like if you say I have nothing to do with church and you you mean the capital C body of Christ, then okay, that's fine. I love you, but that you're not a Christian because Christians are part of the body of Christ. Yes, and you're and then and then why would you comment on the thing? Like, you know, right, right. I have I have no <laughs> advice or no commentary or no critique for how a mosque organizes its, you know, services and infrastructure <laughs> and 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 not at all because I'm mad or embittered or like, oh, I just have it out for Muslims. It's it's like I'm not but I don't participate in that in any way, let alone a meaningful way. I don't have anything to say about how you do it. I'm not writing books that, you know, say like, here's my five beefs with the mosque or that kind of thing. I think these are conversations that we can have within the community of faith. And I think that when we have them, inevitably there will be, you know, like someone recently came to me and said, what do you think about Roar's new book? I didn't mince words or say like, oh, it's it's difficult. or you know, I, I don't think this is true. I don't think this is true. I think this is a good point. This is how I would interpret this thing. I think we can be clear about what we believe and hold one another to a standard. You know, like if you, you know, people often say like, oh, so you saying that people should, can and can't do these things? I'm like, I don't have any commentary for people who aren't in the community of faith with me. I don't care at all. Like not in the screw them kind of way. It's just like, yeah. I'm not bent out of shape about what other That's not your do. concern. Yeah, it's not up to me. You know, like Paul's like, what business is it of mine to judge those judge outside the church? Yeah. But if you come into the church and are like, I want to do this, I want to do it with you, I want to, I want you to help me, then I will call you to a standard and I will invite you to a shared belief, not in a like a fundamentalist, mean-spirited, do-or-die kind of way, but there will be accountability, in other words. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. So November 15th is the big day, I think? That's right, yeah. Awesome. Well, congrats on another, another good book. Uh, you, you wrote a fictional piece too, right? How long ago was that? Yeah, I had, you know, I've written a bunch of self-published novels. The last one came out a few years ago. Um, so this is my first meaningful foray into nonfiction and it's the hardest I've worked on a book. So hopefully somebody cares. <laughs> <laughs> dude, this has been great. Thanks, dude, man. Thanks yeah. so much for inviting me and having me on. I was so honored to get the invitation and I, I really appreciate it. And thanks for, you know, just the really gracious, humble conversation. It's so refreshing oh, sure. and I yeah. really enjoyed it. No, man, definitely. Uh, I did as well. I actually got to on the Seacoast Church. I don't know how familiar you are, but I got to uh, have a talk with uh, Brian Welch from Corn, And I'm, dude, like very similar vibe that you and I had. It's just that that to me is when you can disagree so much with another person but then still feel that that heart connection that i would yep. say has jesus written all over it and you just walk Absolutely. away so encouraged man you know because yeah i agree the world just doesn't have a whole lot of room for that these days and we're, we're agree, losing yeah. the ability to lovingly disagree so yeah thanks, also man. man i appreciate it thank you good right, meeting thanks, you man. yeah likewise dude right. talk to you later Bye.